As we come to the end of Ephesians chapter 6, if you've got your Bibles, um, Ephesians chapter 6 begins with Paul says this one word, finally. Now that's a word that preachers use, but they don't mean it. All right? They just say finally to give you hope. Okay? But when Paul says finally, he really meant it. And this was the last bit that he kind of writes in Ephesians chapter 6. You've got to remember that he's chained to a Roman soldier. And he's writing the book of Ephesians, okay? And at the end, he, say, he, he says, finally, and so he's looking at a last thought to leave. The context of the whole letter, that's very important, okay? The context of the whole letter, he's talked about, you know, who we are, our identity in Christ, the unsearchable riches of Christ. He's talked about how far that Christ has brought us from Death Valley right to the top of Mount Whitney. Do you remember what Dan? He talked about who we are in terms of our identity as a body of people. We are that mystery, the revelation of the church. We are not just together, we are one with the body of Christ joined together. And then, and then last week we looked at the fact that knowing who we are, individually and corporately, we've got to live that out in the real world. We've got to be imitators of God. We've got to clothe ourselves with the, with, with the clothes of God, the light and the love and life, and be filled with the Spirit. We've got to throw off the old man and put on the new. Do you remember that? So that's the context. And then now he's thinking of a final thing to say in the context of that, that you're clear on your identity, you know who you are, and you're going to live it out in the life. What do I want to say? And he's chained to a Roman soldier. And I wonder if when he writes, finally, this is poetic license. Whether When he writes, finally, does he look at that big brute of a soldier next to him? And, and there's all of a sudden a metaphor that comes into his mind to describe what he wants to say. And what he says is, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God. The Roman soldier next to him. So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. My fight is not with this Roman soldier. That's what he's saying. My fight is not against Nero, who was the siege at the time. So our struggle isn't against Nero. It isn't against men or women. It's not against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour, not of Rome... But of God. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and, have, and after you have done everything, to stand. Fabulous verses. And we're going to talk about this. this the, the backdrop, okay, the context of what Paul is writing to the Ephesians and to the believers around that area. Know who you are, know who you are as the church, live it out in the world. And then he's thinking of a final thing to say. He says, and as you live it out, you need to know it's a battleground. It's a battleground. It isn't easy. And as I've looked at this, I've thought I could talk about all kinds of stuff here. Spiritual warfare, territorial spirits, binding and loosing, ghostbuster Christianity. And all of that's got a place. Some of that's got a place, in my opinion. Okay? I'm not going to go there. Because I don't think that's where Paul goes. I think what Paul does in this is he doesn't go there. What he really does is he gives us final instruction on the core strategy for spiritual warfare. Which is not all of those things. That's not the core. The core strategy for spiritual warfare is to put on the full armour of God and know who you are and stand in who you are as a believer. That's the core strategy. My wife started rock climbing this week. And she went along to rock climb and, uh, they, and, and they, she had a lesson and they do this training thing. And the first thing in any kind of sport or anything they're going to do training wise is not the fancy stuff, it's the core stuff, isn't it? We've got to get the core strength in your body right before you can climb a wall is what they said to her. 
Needs to have a few more lessons, I think, apparently, according to her. But that's what they do. They're going to get the core strength right first. And that's what we're going to look at. Life is a battlefield. If we want to live out our identity in Christ in the world, it's going to be a battle. And I want to say three things this morning. There is an enemy. There is a remedy to the enemy. And there is an energy to give us the remedy for the enemy. I'll practice that, okay? So there is a... I can't even say it again. That was just once there. There's an enemy, there's a remedy, and there's an energy that we can have, okay, as we put this into practice. So let's look at the enemy. Paul's view of the enemy of our spiritual life, and Paul's view was that there was always three sources where the battle comes from. The flesh, the old man, we looked at last week, the world, life, and the devil. Use our trusty flip chart, which we've used, I think, every week in this series. Basically, how Paul saw the enemy, if you like, was, was like three circles. Okay, So you've got the flesh, all right. that's like the old man, the battle within us. How many of you know that? that's a real battle, isn't it? Yeah, that's probably our biggest one, actually. There's the world, just doing life, all right, is, is about, and then there is the devil. And actually, Paul's view is that we, if you like, are this bit here in the middle. Take me longer than I anticipated. That could. Just the pen's not great. So basically, we live in the intersection of those three battlegrounds. We live in the intersect. Thanks, Dan. We live in the intersection because I wasn't quite sure whether we live in that intersection of the battle within us, the battle around us, and the battle from the enemy. That's Paul's view. Now, the battle within us we looked at last week: the old man and the new man. All right, the two hungry dogs. Which one wins? The one you feed the most. The battle with the world is just the, the issue of just doing life. Just doing life is a battle enough on its own. The problem with life is that it's so daily, isn't it? And every day we get up, there's a new challenge, isn't there? How many of you know that? And to stay strong as a believer, to know who you are and to live it out, is difficult just because of doing life. Getting old. Having kids. Having kids. Kids getting old. Just, just life. The job. Pressure. Health, falling out with people, your boss, all these things. And of course, in our modern parlance, we'd use the word stress. Have you heard anybody use the word stress in the last 20 minutes? All right? We're all stressed out, aren't we, in our world? I'm not sure we really know what stress really means. But apparently, you know you're stressed if, and here's a little checklist for you, if you say the same sentence over and over again, not realizing you've said it before. If you begin to explore the possibility of setting up an IV drip of caffeine in the morning. If you take red lights personally. If you say the same sentence over and over again, not realising you've said it. You know you're stressed if your heart beats in a 7-8 time. If indigestion tablets become your sole source of nutrition. If you begin to talk to yourself, then disagree about the subject, get into a nasty row, lose, refuse to speak to yourself for the rest of the night. You have an irresistible urge to bite the nose of the people you're talking to. Ever felt that? Is that only me? And you know you're stressed if you say the same sentence over and over again, not realising you've said it before. And, and, and our world is full of stressed out people, isn't it? And just because we're believers doesn't mean that we're exempt from that. And doing life in itself is a challenge. It's a battle. And then, of course, there's the enemy. (laughs) There's the devil. 
There's the enemy of the old man, there's the enemy of the world, but there's the enemy of the devil. Now, C.S. Lewis, who wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he wrote uh, another piece of work called The Screwtape Letter. Some of you will have heard of that. And in that, he says there's two equal and opposite errors that we get into when it comes to our approach to the devil. One is to totally disbelieve in his existence. The other is to have an, over, uh, an unhealthy over-interest in him. In other words, the two extremes we get into is no devil, all devil. And I think he was right. Our modern world says it's spiritual, but still has no place for a spiritual dynamic called the devil or evil forces. Former Secretary of the United Nations said, What element is lacking so that with all our skill and all our knowledge, we still find ourselves in the dark valley of discord and enmity? What is it that inhibits us from going forward together to enjoy the fruits of human endeavor and to reap the harvest of human experience? Why is it that for all of our professed ideals, our hopes, our skills, peace on earth is still a distant objective seen only dimly through the storms and turmoils of our present difficulties? He's saying, why is it that with all that we've got, we're still like this? Well, I think one of the real reasons is that there is a spiritual dynamic in our world called evil. And we don't want to admit it. We don't want to own it. I mentioned a film last week called Falling Down, which somebody said that they'd seen during the week. It was on television. I'm going to mention another one. I'm not recommending that this is family viewing for you. But in the film called The Silence of the Lambs, if you've ever seen that film, okay, not family viewing... But there's an amazing bit in there. I mean, Hannibal Lecter, who's the central character in that, who's a psychopathic serial killer. It is a horrible film, okay? So I'm not recommending the film. But there's a bit in the film where he's talking in the prison to the FBI agent, Officer Clarice Starling. And he says this to her. Well, she's, he's talking about his life and what he's done and all this stuff. And she says to him, what made you like this? What happened to you? So that's the modern question. If you were able to do this, what has happened to you? And he replies, nothing has happened to me. You cannot reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism. Nothing is never anybody's fault anymore. Officer Starling, can you not dare to say, I'm evil? I understand that there are things that happen to people to make them the way they are. But I also believe that there is a presence of something in the world called evil. And it comes from the devil. This is where our movie images of the devil and our Middle Ages depictions of the devil with a pitchfork, you know, and the hooks and and, and the horns and all that. That's where it kind of lets us down. And we think it's just make-believe. It's myth. It's fairy tale. Two kids are walking home from Sunday school one day and they're talking about the lesson that they've just had. They've been studying the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. Little Peter says to his friend John, do you believe that stuff about the devil? Do you think there really is a devil? John looks and said, nah. It's just like Santa Claus, it's your dad. <laughs> it's the same thing. And, and it can be like that, that we think that the, the devil is just like a myth, like Santa Claus. Well, when you go to the Bible, you see that's not how the Bible views the devil. The devil, or Lucifer, or Satan, was a created angel, the Bible teaches. The best understanding of it is that it was a created angel who was evicted from heaven because of pride and rebellion, who took with him probably around a third of the angelic host. Now, why that happened, how that happened, why did God allow that, that's another whole big story, okay? But that's basically just what happened. It says in Isaiah that there's a, there's a reference there to, I saw Satan fall like lightning to the earth. So that's the, the, the scripture there. 
But if there's a real evil in the world, there's a real devil in the world, and we won't get into the why and why does God allow that to happen, because that's a really massive question. What is the purpose of the devil? And Jesus talks about this in John 10, verse 10, and this is the verse I want you to think about this morning. He's talking about the thief coming into the sheep, okay? But that thief is a reference to the devil, and he says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And in a nutshell, that is what the devil's all about. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And notice in those words, there's a progression. See, if I come into Phil's house and steal his television, that's not great for the pastor of the church or for anyone to do that, but I've just stole his television. But if I come in and steal his television and kill his dog, then that's different, isn't it? If I come and steal his television, kill his dog, destroy his whole family and wipe out all of his worldly goods, that's another level, isn't it? And you see, the devil wants to do that. He wants to steal from you. He wants to kill and ultimately he wants to destroy. Now that can happen in the physical, literal, but more often than not, in our context, it's in the spiritual. The devil comes to steal from us. He comes to steal your peace. He comes to steal your security. He comes to steal your identity. When he's stolen your identity, your security and your peace, it's not often, it's not long before you're doing things that you never dreamed you'd do. You're allowing things to come into your life that you never dreamed you would because the devil somehow has been able to steal from you and when he's stolen from you, then all these other things can happen. The word steal in the original is where we get the word stealth from. A stealth bomber comes in under the radar. You never see him coming. I wonder for you this morning, what has come in under your radar and stolen from you? And you think, well, I don't understand how that works. Let me tell you how it works. The devil's really crafty and really cunning and very powerful. need to say that as well. Christians get into some real crazy stuff when it comes to the devil. Very powerful. As the Bible says, you should be alert and on your guard. And the devil works sometimes directly, but more often than not, He will use the battle of the flesh to influence. He will use the battle of life, modern life, stress, to influence. And the Bible said, we looked at it last week, and to get a foothold. And if he can do that and get a foothold, so if you're having a bad time at work and you're falling out with your boss, the devil says, opportunity. Because if I can get in there and get you to speak bad of your boss, I've stolen something from you, haven't I? And I've allowed something to come in. And once I've got a foothold... And I've stolen something. Now from that place of a foothold, I can begin to kill and destroy your effectiveness in the workplace. Because you can't stand your boss. See? And when you say, and and, you know, life is so difficult at the moment. And and you know what? It's so difficult at the moment that I ain't going to read my Bible anymore. And I'm not going to get up and go to church and worship because life's too difficult. and And I don't deserve this and all this stuff. Then the devil has stolen something from you. And he's caused you to be ineffective. And he's withheld from you. That source of strength from, of the Bible and worship and gathering together. And all of a sudden, he's beginning to rob and to kill and to destroy. Are you with me? And that's what Paul talks about when he talks about the enemy. Stealth. What comes in under the radar and steals. So when it comes to money, we see money as a blessing. We see money as... We, see, we, we understand rich. We understand poverty. What we don't see under the radar is the love of money is the root of all evil. That comes under the radar, doesn't it? Above the radar, money is a good thing. The Bible says that. But the love of money is what comes in under the radar. Before we know where we are, we love money so much that it becomes the root of all types of evil. So what has happened in your life this morning? 
Before we push on, what has happened in your life? How has the devil stolen something from you? Perhaps even under the radar. You never saw it coming. Been a little bit over time. Now, I have sat with enough people now, now that I'm as old as I am, whatever that is, I can't even remember. I've sat with enough Christians now to know and they're in, their marriages are falling apart, their spiritual life is disintegrated, and I've sat with enough now to know that didn't happen now, that started way back. When you allowed the devil to steal, under the radar, you never even saw it coming, you allowed him to steal something from you, and then over the passage of time, that stealing became killing, became destroying. And you're sat in my office, your life's a mess, your marriage is in tatters. Why? Because it just happened suddenly out of the blue? No. Because way back there, we allowed the devil to get a foothold. Am I making sense? And before you say, oh yeah, that's right about everybody else, please, please think, is that also right of me? Could that be me this morning? You see, Paul goes on to say that here's this battle that we're in, and there's an enemy there's from three sources, the devil, the flesh, and the world, and the devil exploits all of those three, but there is a remedy. And Paul says here, we've only done one verse, word, finally, <laughs> see that's just to give you hope, be strong in the Lord, he says. Now is he just saying, so there's this big battle against all these forces, okay, and you're in a battle, so be strong. Is he saying, chin up, or in modern parlance, man up, if you know that expression, come on, just be strong in the Lord. It's not what it means at all. This verb, be strong, is in the passive tense. So he doesn't really mean be strong in the Lord. What he really means is be made powerful in the Lord. Be made powerful in the Lord. You don't do it. He does it in you. This is not pop psychology now. Come on, be strong. You know, chin up, man up. You know, come on. It's not what he's saying here. He's saying be made powerful as you stand in the armour of God. And this word stand that Paul uses so many times in this, in this passage, it's amazing. Stand against the devil's schemes. He goes on, put on the full armour of God. When the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground. After doing everything, to stand, stand firm then. He's trying to get a point over. Stand firm. We need to look at that. And we stand in the truth of who we are, our identity. We stand in the context of the whole of the book of Ephesians, Remember? So one of the ways to destroy the work of the enemy in your life is to imitate God. See, when you clothe yourselves with love, when you submit, when you give, when you serve, when you forgive, that destroys the work of the enemy. See, so many people think that spiritual warfare is all about binding and loosing and taking power and authority and all that. And there's a place for all that. But I tell you, some of the most powerful spiritual warfare is when we imitate God. When we clothe ourselves in love and in humility, when we serve, when we give, when we surrender, when we lay down, that's the power of spiritual warfare. That's what causes the enemy to flee. I think he's more bothered that when, in you in your workplace if you live like that every day than whether you can bind and loose and do all of that kind of stuff. So you can do all of that and go and, to work and not serve and not give and not forgive and not release and there's no power. So he says, stand in the truth of who you are. Stand in the identity. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul says, my power is made perfect, God says, in your weakness. So we don't stand in our strength. We stand in our weakness. And his strength is made perfect out of our weakness. And then as he says, stand, he says, and then put on the full armor of God. And we're going to look at that for a moment. Let me say a few words about the armor of God. It's provided for us. The word, the phrase put on literally means take up. It's here. Take it up. Put it on. It's multifaceted. It's the full armor of God. It's not just a bit, a bit. It's multifaceted. 
And it's from God. It's his armour. It's not man-made armour. In that picture in the Old Testament of, of David, the young boy David, do you remember the story? He went to the battlefield to fight Goliath and, and he said, I'll do it, I'll do it. And, and Saul said, okay, here's my armour. Put this armour on and it, he looked a numpty. You know, he just looked ridiculous. And he said, I can't fight in man-made armour. I'm going to fight in the name of the Lord. It's not man-made. It's not our own concoction. It's in the strength of God. So, it's all right, I'm not clear enough. I will come back. We've got a little bit of armour here. I'm not going to get somebody out. We did that last week. But I just want to very quickly talk you through some of these concepts. Okay, Just give us a bit of understanding and then we'll look at how it all hangs together. So there's the belt of truth. Okay, We all know what a belt is. Now the belt was the bit that if you like, everything else hung around. Okay, The sword would be connected to the belt. Everything else in place because of the belt. And Paul says that it's a belt of truth. See, once you lose truth, real, remember, the last couple of weeks we've been saying, we act and behave not in accordance with the truth, but in accordance with the truth as we perceive it to be. But this is the objective truth. The truth of who you really are in Christ needs to be your belt. The breastplate of righteousness. The word breastplate there is thoraca, where we get the word thorax from. Okay, It would have been bigger than this. It would have covered from the neck right down to here all of the vital organs. The breastplate of righteousness covers all of the vital organs. What righteousness means is being right before God. You want to know what spiritual warfare is? It's being right before God. If you're in a right relationship with God, you're covered. That's what that literally means. And then he talks about the shoes of the gospel of peace. Now they weren't quite like these ones that we've got here. They would have had some of these straps. But on the bottom of a Roman soldier's shoe was not just an open sandal like that, but there would have been big hobnail spikes on the bottom of the shoe. And the reason for that, and when we look at the shoes, the readiness of the shoes of the gospel of peace, we often think about movement and going and like, you know, running with shoes. And that's all part of it. But that's not what Paul's talking about really here. Because the, as he's looking at the Roman soldier and he's looking at his shoes, he knows that when Roman soldiers fight, they lock their shields together. You've seen Gladiator and all these kind of films, okay? They lock them together. And when the enemy hits at them, they there's like a wall and, it, and they've got to stand. And the hobnail boots or the, the sandals with the spikes cause them to put their feet in and not slide when they're under pressure. That's what Paul's talking about. You've got to know that when the pressure comes and the battle comes that you can stand your ground and not slide. And you do that when they're fitted with peace. When you are at peace with God... When you are at peace with God and peace with yourself, you can stand and not slide. Even when all these other enemies are pressing you and pushing you, you can stand and not slide. Amen? That's what Paul is really talking about. Isn't that amazing? In the heat of the battle, do I lose my peace? Wow, I know I do. In the heat of the battle, it's like, oh God, you don't exist and I'm this poor little wretch and you know, how can you do this? That's what happens to me. And I slide away so quickly. I want to identify with that. God, give me these shoes of peace that you know anchor my feet in. That when everything comes against me, I don't slide. I don't slide. I don't slide. I stay rooted in who I am. When others attack you or criticize you or even wound you, do you crumble inside? Do you slide? Or do you dig your feet in, knowing that despite life, God is in control and God is at work? Even if I can't see it. Do we dig our feet in 
not in like obstinate rebellion to God, but do we dig our feet in so that we don't slide into this whole kind of oblivion? And then there's the shield of faith, and it wouldn't have been a shield like this because the word is through through us, through us, through That's hard to say. It wasn't round; it was oblong, and it was again one of the oblong shields that was designed in such a way, made out of wood and leather, and designed in such a way to interlock with all the other soldiers. And they would interlock so there would be a wall across the front, and then they lift it up like that, and there will be a ceiling. And literally, they were an armoured tank. The Roman soldiers were the first expression of a tank. No you know, mechanism in terms of wheels and engines, but literally they were a tank. All these shields interlocked at the front and holding up over behind, and they would be able to move forward. And they were wooden leather... And the only way to penetrate was fiery darts. You read that in the Bible? Arrows with dipped in pitch, set alight, and sent like that. It's the only way to penetrate. But when these shields were locked together, they could move forward into the enemy's territory. Not just stay, but actually move forward. And the Bible says, Paul says, pick it up, it's a shield of faith. Our faith is not in faith. Is it? Our faith is in an object. If your faith is just in faith, then you ain't got anything. But our faith is in an object and the strength of the object determines the validity of our faith. Our faith is in Christ. When the battle is fierce, we look up to Christ. When the battle is fierce, we stand in what Christ has done and we know that it will work out well. might not work out as we want it to, but it will work out well because God is always in control. Now that's a hard one to get your head around there when it doesn't work out like you wanted to or expected to. But faith, deep faith, is knowing that God is in control and God is at work. And then the helmet of salvation, just briefly. Obviously on the head, I won't put this on the head because it looks quite manky. But basically the helmet of salvation, the idea is salvation. Understanding salvation, okay, is understanding that there's a past dimension. We're saved from the, from the penalty of sin by what Christ has done. But there's a present dimension. We're saved, if you like, and protected from the power of sin currently. And there's a future dimension. One day we will be saved from the very presence of sin. Isn't that right? Salvation is all-encompassing, past, present, future. And we put that on our head and we understand that's who we are in Christ. And then the sword of the Spirit, Makari, the short sword. This was offensive and defensive. refers to the sword of the Spirit. It says in Hebrews 4 verse 12, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, it divides, and it judges. So Jesus is in the desert and he's tempted by the devil. Do you remember that? Literally a full-on you know, direct attack from the devil. And he says, it is written. It is written. goes back to the word. The sword of the Spirit. It's our offensive weapon. If we don't know the Bible, folks, we've got no chance of standing in the heat of the battle. Sorry to be blunt, but we haven't. Where are our Bibles today? If you haven't brought them, if you brought it, bring it, bring it. If, honestly, read it. If we don't know the Bible, if we don't know the truth, we've got no chance of standing when the battle gets fierce. Our feet will just go, slide away. Because we won't know that we're rooted in Christ. The fiery darts, all this kind of stuff. We need to understand the Bible. Now, I want to bring all that together because, to be honest, the individual bits of the armor and what they mean are not really the main point here. You see, when you look at all those individual bits as I've just whipped through it all, Paul says, put on the full armour of God so that you can stand. What's he saying? He's using a metaphor. 
He's looking at the Roman soldier using a metaphor. He's trying to describe by the various aspects of the armour something, or can I say, someone. Belt of truth. Breastplate of righteousness. Gospel are shoes of peace. It's a shield of, it's a helmet of, and it's a sword of the, he's describing Christ, isn't he? Putting on the full armour of God, Paul is saying, listen, every day when you get up, live in Christ. Live in Christ. Let Christ be your power. Let Christ be your guide. Let Christ be your source. Live in the fullness of Christ. When you live in Christ as a lifestyle, you are putting on the full armour of God and you can stand. Isn't that amazing? You can stand when every day you live in the lifestyle of Christ. When you live in Christ. See, we tend to think that spiritual warfare is something that we pick up and do. It's not something we pick up and do. It's something that we live in and are. We live in Christ. We live in the finished work of Christ. No other, what is that old hymn? Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I can't remember the rest of the words. But there's something like, you know, you know, I'm, you know, in Christ, the righteousness of Christ, I am protected because I stand in Christ. Helmet of salvation. Fantastic. And then Paul just kind of finishes by saying, so here's a battle, there's an enemy, here's the remedy, you've got to live in Christ, you've got to live in Christ every day. And then, then there's a question, that, and how do we do that? What's the energy to do that? Well, the energy to do that is prayer. It's prayer. Verse 18, just look at this, phenomenal stuff here. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me. Prayer isn't dropping to our knees and putting our hands together with our eyes closed and saying, Dear God, help. Or dear God, thank you. Or whatever. That isn't prayer. Prayer is a constant dialogue, a conversation with God, an involvement, involving God in every aspect of our life. But of course, why pray when you can panic? Isn't that true? And I wonder how many of us, when we're in the heat of the battle in the, of the flesh, do we pray? I wonder how many of us, when we're in the battle at work and in our life and in our marriage and in our home life and in our, and in our finances, do we pray? Do we involve God in that? And do we do it as a first resort or as a last resort? And I'm not, I'm not judging. I'm, I'm, I'm there. Do you know what I mean? I'm hopeless at this sometimes. And I wonder how many times do I miss opportunities for God to do amazing things because I leave him till, right till the end. You know what I'm saying? And Paul says, pray, pray all the time. Pray. Involve Christ in every decision that you make. Involve Christ in every single thing. It's not just dropping to our knees and closing our eyes. It's breathing. Sometimes it's shouting. Sometimes it's thinking. Christ. Sometimes it's short. Sometimes it's long. Sometimes it's a conversation. Sometimes it's just a, a request. But to have that dialogue every day. Do we do that every day where we get up and we say, okay God, today I'm living in you. I'm putting on the full armour of God. Do, do you know what I mean? Do we do that and say, okay, today this is your day God. Give me some opportunities. So you hit a problem at work, what do we do? We hit a problem in the family, what do we do? Do we involve God? If we do more and more, then we're living in Christ more and more. And we're giving him opportunities to feed us and to strengthen us. And I want to finish this morning by, 
I want to go a bit ancient on you for a moment. Is that all right? I'm going to talk to you about a Lorica prayer. A Lorica prayer comes from the Celtic tradition. St. Patrick um, devised this initially. And it's called his breastplate prayer, called a Lorica. And basically this was the prayer that St. Patrick is reputed to have said every day of his life. And I want to read it out to you this morning. And I'm not going to read all of it because it's quite long. But I just want you to get a sense of, wow, wouldn't that be an awesome prayer to pray every day and to live that out in reality. And then, I'm, then we're going to just worship God and we're going to remind ourselves that we stand in the full armour of God because of what Christ has done. We face the enemy, not in our own strength, but in His. Don't we? Don't we? It doesn't matter how weak you feel because God says my power is made perfect in your weakness, not your strength. So don't let weakness be the excuse for not standing. Because weakness is the qualification when you're stood in the strength of God. And every day he said this, I arise today or I stand today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in threeness, through confession of oneness of the creator of creation, I arise today through the strength of Christ's birth with his baptism, through the strength of his crucifixion with his burial, and through the strength of his resurrection with his ascension. I arise today. I arise today through the strength of heaven, light of sun, radiance of moon, splendor of fire, speed of lightning, swiftness of wind, depth of sea, stability of earth, firmness of rock I arise today through God's strength to pilot me God's might to uphold me God's wisdom to guide me God's eye to look before me God's ear to hear me God's word to speak to me God's hand to guard me God's way to lie before me God's shield to protect me God's host to save me from snares of devils from temptations of vices from everyone who shall wish me ill afar and anear Alone and in the multitude, I arise today. Christ, shield me today. And listen to what he had to be shielded from. Against poisoning, against burning, against drowning, against wounding. So there comes to me abundance of reward. And then listen to this end bit. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ on my right. Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit up, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in the eye of everyone who sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in threeness, through confession of oneness, the creator of creation, I arise today. Isn't that phenomenal? Apparently every day he prayed that prayer and he put on the full armor of God to say, God, I stand today in what you have done and in who you are and I want to live out of that. Isn't that phenomenal?